right before the pandemic, we're talking the last week in February, um, my wife got for me a, a beautiful old restored Victrola. And uh, it was a birthday present, took a couple weeks, a couple months to get there. But um, it was made in 1915 and uh, it plays old 78s. So they're not just the albums of vinyl that we typically would associate, but like uh, glass shellac uh, albums that uh, go around 78 times a minute. Each side plays about three or four minutes of music. So they're very short sides, which is why vinyl and long play records ended up coming out and then ultimately CDs. Um, but it gave me this opportunity to figure out what music I wanted to have in my house. I've taken a special fondness in kind of the short miniature romantic piano music and playing on that because it fits the side so well. So imagine like Chopin Nocturnes, for example, or something I turned to a lot. Probably not something I would have taken off the shelf just for background listening. But this idea of the intention that you have when you have to get up every three or four minutes and you know flip it over, um, you spend a lot of time in between those occasions listening very carefully. And what comes through these kind of ancient doors that uh, reveal what, what, what's basically the speaker, um, it's it's sincere there, there's there's no plug in the wall there's no amplification happening it's true music but if i were doing this five years from now or five years ago i don't think it would have hit me in the same sort of emotional way in a year when physical distancing forced people apart music brought us together i'm not sure how the sales of victrolas did in 2020 but vinyl record sales did surpass CDs for the first time since the 1980s, and Bluetooth speaker sales rose by nearly 8%. And you imagine back in the 19-teens when uh, people were experiencing these, these instruments for the first time, it was bringing recorded music into the house for the first time, and people getting to listen to whatever they wanted and listen to it again and again and start to have some of that control and facility over the art form. So it's very similar to some of the stuff that I was talking about through streaming and you know the, the, the user experience. But I go back to these old 78s, some of which are over 100 years old, and listen to them. And you can't help but think that they're just ghosts coming from the last pandemic through time and through uh, this restored instrument to, to tell us that there's still a story to be told. The sentiment of carefully curating our pandemic soundtrack rings true across the board. We filled up silent rooms with streaming services like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube, where we created work from home playlists as the backdrop to our collective lifestyle shift. As live concerts were canceled and music halls emptied, music organizations had to think creatively and fast on how they would not only stay alive, but perhaps even thrive. Because while audiences were removed from concert halls and jazz bars, suddenly everywhere could be a place for music. And that flexibility and control meant broader and more diverse audiences could enjoy music at a time when perhaps it's needed most. I'm your host, Logan, and this is Social Distances, a podcast where we examine the distances that both separate us and bring us together during the complex and compounded crises of 2020. Today, we bring you an episode in two parts, 
both about how music continues on during the pandemic and its bittersweet, well, mostly sweet, relationship with technology. First up, we talk with Zach Vassar, President and CEO of the Toledo Symphony Orchestra and Toledo Alliance for the Performing Arts, to learn how a 78-year-old symphony loosened up, innovated, and improvised amidst uncertainty. I think that, that, that this is like uh, kind of this glacial organization, this glacial art form that is so steeped in tradition and the way of doing things um, that trying new ways is really foreign. We used to make decisions 18 months out, uh, maybe 12 months out was moving quickly, but now we make decisions on performances three weeks out. So, you know, these kind of cycles are far faster than they would ever have been before, but it took the pandemic to make us that nimble. Can you give us a couple of examples of being that nimble during all of the craziness? <laughs> so, um, you know, the the interesting thing, if, if I look way back, if I rewind the tape back to March, you know, we were in this wonderful organization that had just done uh, Carmina Burana with the symphony and the ballet and the uh, three choirs from Bowling Green. We had more people on the peristyle stage than we ever had in history over 250 people. And the interesting thing that happened was that was the week when the world started shutting down. And we put together our five sequences of closure that we would that we would entertain. And that would be everything from, uh, you know, not having live audiences to not having people in the office. Um, and we went from stage one to stage five in about four days. And we thought that we were gonna take that through, you know, maybe a couple weeks or a month. and. So when I say that we had to be nimble, we had to go from having concerts to not having a concert and playing before just our cameras and live streaming that performance. And as it turns out, as we become familiar with a new normal, what was once uncomfortable actually became something surprisingly comfortable. One of the reasons we really wanted to move into streaming content is that it provides greater access. That means that people who are um, maybe in Toledo, but not able to drive at night can start coming to our concerts. They can watch our concerts live, they can watch them in the archives. So getting to a performance is no longer the obstacle, but it's also introducing us to audiences that never would have known we exist or that art like this is made in a town like Toledo. We have now in just uh, three months picked up viewership from 45 U.S. states and 10 different countries across six continents. And by moving to the live streams, we were able to go to the consumer. And that is so important because we talk about the relevance of the arts. And if it's a come to me model, then there are a lot of ways where that doesn't feel relevant. And that creates a lot of barriers for transportation, for mobility, for access, for ability to pay. But if it's a we come to you situation, then it pulls back on a lot of those, those obstacles and those barriers. So I love that we've moved into this, um, this, this direction because it allows people to try us in a different way. If you're not accustomed to going to a concert, if the peristyle is overly formal, then you can do this on your own turf and at your own time. And freeing up expectations for what you have to arrange or look like or wear when you listen to the symphony means that the door to a classical music concert is more open than ever. If you can watch something at home, 
and, and you're comfortable. It cuts down on some of your own barriers. Maybe you don't want to get dressed up in a tie and a suit and go downtown at Saturday at 8 p.m., uh, but you want to stay home, and, and you can do that. So uh, a lot of wonderful photographs have been coming back our way where patrons are sending us uh, shots of our performances on their televisions in their living rooms. But what we see are a lot of really interesting photographs of families watching together. You know, kids who get to stay up late to watch this with mom and dad. And, you know, if this, is, again, is an art form that we're trying to draw new attention to and create new audiences for, my gosh, we put up a lot of very tall walls. You know, what you have to wear, when you have to get there, what you have to, where you have to park, how you have to act when you sit still, when you don't, when do you clap, who can you bring? And if you can't bring your, your, your kids who might even have a vested interest in, in the art form, then what message are we really sending? As barriers like location, time, and schedule that separate performance and audience vanish, other perhaps less clearly defined barriers are also being broken down, even if just coincidentally. For example, the tradition and decorum that can tend to isolate those on stage from the people below. Because of you know the pandemic and what we know about aerosols and fabric, uh, we decided that we were going to change our dress code this year. And this might be the most paramount change. It's a small thing to the observer, but for our tradition, this is a very big change. We normally would take the, the stage wearing our penguin outfits. We'd be wearing our tuxedos, our white tie, our tails, our vest. And um, of course, you're not going to have those professionally clean between every performance, rehearsal, etc. So we moved to a much more user-friendly uh, outfit this year in that everybody uh, just wears what we would call pit black, as if you were in the if you were in the pit at the Strandhan or the Valentine, and uh, for women that's you know black black shirts, black blouses, uh, black pants, dress. Uh, for for guys, it's black pants and a, a button up black shirt. If you're feeling really edgy, you can wear a black jacket on top of that. But this means that nobody has a necktie on, nobody has a bow tie on, and suddenly what we project out to the audience is much more casual. Now, uh, some of our musicians would have hated this in the pre-pandemic days because right. they found that penguin outfit to be kind of their battle armor. It's <laughs> what they would take in. It was, you know, they, it was their 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 shields and, and their it was it was the thing that gave them confidence. But now, as as we start to see how people are moving in in the more comfortable clothes, uh, they're playing more freely. And I think this is something that I would love to see continue because it sends a very different message off of the stage. If we're wearing tuxedos and tails, that's representing a tradition that might have come out of the 1880s, you know, in a Victorian era when that's what your audience would be wearing. But if we're in 2020 or 2021, the audience isn't wearing that anymore. So why should we? And I think that this casualization of the experience of playing in the symphony uh, is going to be very interesting to what it says to the audience if we continue doing this after the pandemic is over. But while these innovations do seem to be here to stay, something about music also requires a collective, physical experience. And that's something that maybe screens and headphones just can't completely replace. And, you know, that's the big struggle with this, is that in times of crisis, we as communities have always come together. We hug together, we eat together, we pray together. And those are the sorts of things that we haven't been able to do for a year now. So once that light turns on, I imagine that it's going to be human nature 
to want to go back to that. We begin part two, 140 miles east in Akron, Ohio, where Chris Anderson is bringing music to people. Director of the Oberlin Jazz Ensemble, he is also the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called Open Tone Music, working to make music accessible to thousands of kids who have diverse sets of challenges and environments that can make access to music difficult. A friend of mine, um, uh, Dr. Jay Lanier, actually dragged, kind of dragged me into music education <laughs> back in the 90s. By 90s, I mean like 1990. Um, and I was teaching, teaching, um, you know, inner city youth going door to door and the projects kind of handing out flyers saying, oh, we have this free program. And we would see a lot of different kids. Sometimes we would have five kids show up. Sometimes we have 25 kids show up. So started figuring out a lot about how to teach these diverse populations. But one of the, one of the things that was challenging then, which is still a challenge in some cases, is the, the parents of the students that we're working with are have, have a lot going on. And this music isn't always looked at as a priority. Well, you know, one of the priorities, they're trying to keep their kids' grades up. They're trying to, uh, you know, pay bills, deal with other things. Chris has been working through Open Tone Music since its inception 10 years ago, providing music lessons, concerts, and experiences to students in primarily urban areas in Northeast Ohio. Having benefited from learning music, these kids' experiences have led them to receive full scholarships to places like Yale, Berkeley, Oberlin, MIT, and Cleveland State. So we've, we've been able to do some exciting things, not, not with creating musicians as being a focus, but that's kind of a byproduct because we see so many kids, but we, our main focus is just using music as a tool to teach work ethic, build kids' self-esteem, self-respect for themselves, respect for their communities. But 2020 was a very different year. This experience of the pandemic has, in some ways, kind of uh, magnified some of the existing challenges of being able to have access to to students, but then other ways it's made it, it's given us new ways to be able to engage students. Like I'm listening to these different online recordings and th it has to go through this filter. So the musicians are playing into these microphones, those microphones are then relating the sound to, you know, a server, which is then relating the sound back to me and then it has to come through my microphones. So by the time it gets to me, it's been filtered down so much. I mean, you can get an you can get an idea, but it's not the same as being in person with uh, with other with other artists. It's hard to get this all the time, but I'll just tell you real quick that as a performer, you know, you try to be in the moment as much as possible. It kind of puts you in this place where you're kind of aware at the past of the past present and future all at the same time like you're fully aware of what everything that's going on the energy that you're getting from the the audience like it might be a smile it might be a head nod 
somebody might just clap. Uh, um, you might hear a certain thing and get a certain frequency from the drums that you can't get over over the over headphones. So that's that's what I was saying about that in-person experience is so it's just a hard to your point it's just a hard thing and maybe even an impossible thing to try to recreate how have uh, you dealt with having to sort of overcome some of those barriers maybe not having physical access to interaction to playing music together you know what have you been doing to try to in some ways recreate that experience best you can virtually i think we're getting better at it you know we've started to create more content, for example, for the students so that they can have um, pieces of the material or different interactions that they can do throughout the week and including sharing videos back and forth between teachers and students. Even when we open, as things can continue to open back up, figuratively speaking, we'll, we'll keep that, that digital component both as a supplement to the kids that we're seeing in person. And then to get, again, as I mentioned earlier, it gives us the opp opportunity to reach outside of our normal service area and impact even more kids. Right. And I, uh, that last point you mentioned, I'm really fascinated that in some ways, what was originally a regional endeavor has now expanded internationally. We have a, a culturally diverse group of students that we work with. And as we kind of share these different cultures, these kids are finding more of their own identity and how it really, how, you know, more of a historical reference as to where they came from, making, giving them more, heightening their self-esteem. So one of the, one of the ways that we're doing that is we're working with a group called Cultural Resources that in partnership with them, Open Tone Music Boys and Girls Club developed this program called the Amistad Caribbean Arts Camp. We're going to be virtual again this year. And what it focuses on is the African, the more recent African diaspora coming from West Africa into the Caribbean, into the States, and, um, and into the Americas, rather. So these kids are learning about music of uh, Jamaica, you know, Haiti, Cuba, Puerto Rico. They have we have artists from these locations that are working with local students, teaching them about about the importance of these cultures as it relates to us today. And they're also learning about different ethnic groups and musical sounds and and patterns and getting a, a snapshot of some of the contributions that have. Uh, you know how all of this relates to what has come out of come out of West Africa over the past 500 years or 600 years or so. You know, I had mentioned Trinidad earlier, and they have actually now engaged in other programs that are happening in Cleveland by way of being part of Open Tone. So it's, it's a pretty hip thing. So I think this is the beginning of something that's that could be pretty beautiful. By being apart, we've also come together in new or maybe old ways. Because not all music is created for a concert hall. It's always been a way of connecting across our everyday lives. What's kind of cool about that, being a musician myself, you know, I'm a trombonist. I studied, uh, I got my degrees in classical music. 
um, performed that for several years, but most of what I do now is jazz music. And jazz music is, um, because that's what we're calling it now, that music is informed by all types of music, it, which it doesn't see itself as a separate thing. Like it, every, every music, every culture has something to offer. The idea of music just as this sit down and listen experience is, is as it relates to human history is kind of new. It's kind of a new idea. Um, when you look at some of the ancient cultures and you, you don't even have to go back like too far, but you, you know, you look at some of these cultures, especially as I was just talking about West Africa, for example, the, you know, music is just a part of the, these earlier cultures, music is just a part of what we do. It's just a part of what that culture experiences is not the separate thing, the separate from, uh, from your human experience. Amidst a global pandemic, we've somehow come full circle to solidify and strengthen our sense of connection to music and to one another. I mean, music has taken me all over, all over the country. It's, it's afforded me the opportunity to be able to travel to different countries overseas. So it's been a beautiful thing to me when I give that experience to somebody else. I'm your host, Logan, and this is Social Distances where each week we look at a different cross-section of society that has been impacted by the crisis and unpack topics ranging from the environment, earth and death, shelter, media, race relations, and more through insights from historians, anthropologists, policymakers, and other researchers. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the video edition on social media under at MidStory or at www.midstory.org. This program is made possible in part by Ohio Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Social Distances is produced by MidStory, edited by Samuel Chang, written by Ruth Chang and Logan Sander, with original music by Dream Louder and graphics by Jesse Walton.